Let's turn together back to the letter to Hebrews and chapter 13 and we can read at verse 5. Hebrews 13 at verse 5. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And so on. We'll return to this later and we're following on from our study this morning with chapter 10 where the writer is drawing our attention to the response that the gospel requires of us as those who are under its preaching. And we notice the way in which this church was very much tossed by the storms of life, struggling in their faith, struggling because of what was happening in the world around them, losing interest in the gospel, being disheartened and being discouraged, and also becoming weary in all that living the life of faith required of them. And because of all of these things, they were close to falling away from the living God. They were close to losing their faith. Uh, And we noticed in the morning the way in which the writer begins by drawing their attention to the person of Jesus Christ and his work and drawing attention to the way in which if there is going to be a recovery or if a church that is tossed by the storms of life is going to recover to find peace and calm, it is going to happen only through focusing on the person of Jesus and his work. And in that part of the letter we saw there was a movement from teaching about Jesus to asking them to respond to the gospel. From then onwards, the letter looks at at faith and what faith requires and how faith works. And we have these great examples of faith. We have the way in which he speaks of coming to Mount Zion, the city of the living God. And we come into chapter 13 and it's kind of a postscript to the letter. It's a a kind of PS to all that he has said. And in doing so, he's drawing your attention to the way in which they are to live in their families, in their home, in their community, and focusing in on the things that are going to enable them to live as individuals and as the community of faith. And what you focus in on, verses 5 down to verses 8 this evening, and to see the way in which in this postscript to the lector it requires certain things of them and in doing so to think of the contentment that comes from historical faith. In other words, the contentment that we can only find in the faith of the Bible, in the faith that we see in Abraham all of the way down to to Samson and uh, all of the list of folks who had faith, only that faith working properly will give us the contentment that we crave. And first of all, we want to notice that he does say something about 
contentment. It's so important to be content. And at the very outset, let's be clear that there is a difference between contentment and satisfaction. When I'm satisfied, I'm filled up with the things that I'm looking for and that I'm asking for. I'm satisfied because I have everything that I want. I am content when I don't have everything that I want, but when I have the things that God has allocated to me. And let's keep that distinction clear in our minds. Satisfaction is I have everything. Contentment is I don't have everything, but I'm content with what God has given to me. And that's what the writer is drawing attention to here. It's so important for us as the children of God to grasp that in our lives. Keep your life free from the love of money. The way in which you are going to live your life, turning around as you do in every area of life, you're going to live it free from the love of money. And it's interesting to note that when he uses this one word in the Greek, free from money, one of the the root words that make up that word is the word phileo, which is love. And when Jesus was speaking to Peter and restoring him to faith in, in, in John chapter 21, he said to Peter for the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Do you phileo me? Phileo is at the very center of discipleship. And the phileo that Jesus is asking Peter if he has is the love that that Peter has for Jesus. And Peter says to, to Jesus, you know everything. You know that I love you. You know that I have phileo for you. We have the same word appearing in the word Philadelphia, which is love for the brothers. And that's also part of being disciples. That we know we have passed from death to life because we love the brothers. We have Philadelphia as well as Philio with regard to the love that we have for the Lord Jesus. But, but here we have the word that translates us free from the love of money. It's aphelargros. It's not having the love for money. It's phileo, it's the same thing. And, and from that we see that this is really coming to the very crux of being disciples. That this phileo that is bound up in a relationship with Jesus can come to be compromised because we have a love for something else. And here it is, the love for money. And the writer is saying to them that love for Jesus and love for money are mutually exclusive. We cannot have both. Jesus says the same thing in the Sermon on the Mount. We cannot love God and money. Important to to get that, that right so that we understand what Jesus himself is saying in the Sermon on the Mount. Look at the birds. 
of the air, the lilies of the field? What do they do? Are they concerned with what happens next or what will come tomorrow? Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. It's the love, the phileo for for the kingdom of God and for the Lord Jesus. That's the important thing. And right back in in the the very terms of the, the covenant that God has made with his people, when he gave them the Ten Commandments, he finishes off the commandments with that Tenth Commandment that you shall not covet anything that is your neighbour's. God himself understands that this love for other things, that this love for money, that this coveting interferes with our relationship with God. And when we look at the shorter catechism and look at what that commandment requires and what that commandment forbids, it's a commandment that requires us to be fully content with our condition. And it forbids all discontentment with our own estate and condition. We really have the Tenth Commandment brought to our attention in these words that the writer is speaking to his readers, his hearers, for whom this is a temptation. And they are a people who, who we read in chapter 10, they, they sacrificed so much when they came to believe in the Lord Jesus at first. They sacrificed even their property. It wasn't important to them. What was of supreme importance was their love for the Lord Jesus. And I'm sure this is a challenge for Christian faith in every generation the challenge of materialism, where we become more concerned with material possessions and physical comfort than we are with spiritual matters, with things that belong to our faith. And the generation in which we live, it's a generation that is highly materialistic. And that sense of being materialistic becomes something that interferes with our faith so that our focus on our material possessions and our physical comfort bear upon us so much that they drive out our concern and our love for the important spiritual things that speak about our relationship with God. And for sure in the day in which we live, with the economic crisis that surround us, with the energy crisis, with the way in which it impacts on homes and families, of course there is a concern. Of course there is the sense of our need to have what is necessary for life. That's not being materialistic. What's being materialistic is becoming obsessed with things that we don't need and that we don't have, and being so focused upon them that they go off with all of our energy. And you and I are faced with that every day of our lives. The danger of having love for the things that we don't have. The danger of looking for satisfying your every craving, 
and not being where God wants us to be. Which is be content with what you have. Paul says that he learned whatever state he was in, therein to be content. It's that stillness and that calmness that was his as a person who was persecuted, whose life was in danger, who lost everything, who gave up everything, who simply focused on serving his master as an apostle. He had learned whatever state he'd be in, therein to be content. And that same Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, and he speaks of the way in which godliness with contentment is great gain. Here is our faith working. Here is our, our faith content in the inheritance that we have in Christ, the unsearchable riches that are available to us in Him, marveling at the, the glorious way in which God has provided for us such riches. God is of my, my inheritance. My God shall satisfy all of your needs from his riches and glory. It's that sense of contentment in the things that God has provided in God's allocation to me in life. Instead of loving money, be content with what you have. And that is why the same Paul is able to say, in 2 Corinthians 6, having nothing and yet possessing all things. How much that is a corrective for your faith and for mine. That no matter what we have, that when we have Christ, we have everything. We have even God himself as our inheritance and all of his promises contentment. Once we discover that, once we're able to maintain that, once we learn the distinction between satisfaction and contentment, once we see the riches that we have in Christ Jesus, then we find contentment, godliness with contentment is great Gain. We want to gain so much so that we will have so much. But the real gain is in the godliness where we find contentment in God. Contentment. Secondly, we want to see connected with that confidence. We can only be content when we have the confidence that faith has. And that's what we see in the second part of verse number five. For he has said that contentment comes from the word of God and for the way in which he has pledged certain things for us and for our good. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He is the God who will never abandon us or neglect us. 
He will never leave us behind. He is always with us wherever we go. And sometimes in life we can be let down by people. Sometimes we can be let down by our close friend. Jesus was let down by Judas Iscariot. He was abandoned by him. He turned his back upon him. We can, in that way, be forsaken by those closest to us. But he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. A great pledge. And we need to recognize that when he gives that pledge to us and to the hearers here, that that pledge was given in a particular situation at a great threshold in the kingdom of God when the encouragement was needed most. They were words that were given to Joshua in chapter number one, where Moses has died. And God is saying to to Joshua that he is going to lead this people into the promised land to inherit the land that I promised and the oath to give to your fathers, sworn to give them. You are the person that's going to lead them into the inheritance of the promised land. And in that great moment, God said to Joshua, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. The pledge is significant. The occasion on which it was given is highly significant. And for this people, they themselves are going to hear this word and receive this pledge as those themselves who are on their journey of faith through this letter and who have believed in the Christ who is saying to them that he is the one who is bringing many sons into glory. That in many ways they live life confident in the hope of the gospel, the hope that brings them into the glory of God. And as surely as Joshua received this promise and pledge on the threshold of the promised land, so we tonight as the children of God receive and hear that pledge as those who are on the threshold, who are close to the the day of the return of the Lord Jesus. And God is saying to us, we can have confidence tonight because we have the same pledge that God gave to Joshua through which you overcame Jericho after crossing the Jordan and through which you went on to, to allocate the land to the tribes of the children of Israel. God has pledged that he will bring us from this world from every conflict and from every testing situation and he will bring us into the calm of the glory that lies beyond. Confidence in the word of God. And you and I tonight have to to learn to have that same confidence. Grasping on the very promise of God and recognizing that he is with us to protect us, that he is with us to bring us safely home, that he is with us in order that we may enter in to the glory of the people of God. And we saw that last Lord's Day on Psalm 73. 
you with your counsel while I live will may conduct and guide and to your glory afterward receive me to abide it's a pledge of his presence that we will receive our inheritance and that confidence fills our heart with contentment in God knowing that the most precious thing and the most priceless thing is certainly ours and we will have it in God's time. And to drive home that sense of confidence, we see that we see in verse six that he says, So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper, I will not fear what can man do to me. The first cause of confidence was given in the words given to Joshua on the threshold of going to inherit. We can have confidence now from these words of David that we sang in Psalm number 118 and the occasion of them is highly significant because they are from the song of praise of David at the end of his life. Joshua had it at the beginning of his journey into the promised land. David gives this confirmation the faithfulness of God at the end of his life. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. The Lord is my helper. And the idea of helper is so special in so many different ways that the Lord's name is among those who helps us and that he is top of the list of our helpers. Jesus has promised the help of the Holy Spirit through which the God who is our helper will help us. But significantly, the way in which David speaks of help, it's running to a person on a call for help. It's pressing the button for the emergency call that the child of God makes in this world and in response to that, God comes to help. It speaks of the relationship. It speaks of the closeness of the relationship. It speaks of the presence of God and God's commitment to David in every way. It's the running to someone who has called for help. And that brings us to, to every situation in which we need help. We can confidently run to God for help on the spur of the moment, cry out to him simply to help us. We don't need to say anything more than that. And at our call to him, he comes in response. He's not at our beck and call, but he is there because he has promised to be our helper. And we can have the confidence that David had, as we read throughout the whole of that psalm, where he is the David who, with whom God has made a covenant, the David who, who struggles so that he speaks about the waves of death and the cords of shale wrapping themselves around him. He's in a life-threatening situation. And out of all of these situations, God helps him. God delivers him so that he is triumphant. He is victorious. 
victorious. He triumphs over all those who hate him. The enemies of God's king and the enemies of God's people. The confidence, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? To be able with David to say in that same psalm, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. In dwellings of the righteous is heard the melody, that joy and praise that God's right hand does ever valiantly. And that's what confidence in God's pledge and promise gives to us. It gives us joy in which we are content. And it gives us contentment in our joy because it is all about what God does for us and does, does as our helper so that we can say with Paul who is writing to the, the people of God in Rome and to the saying that nothing shall separate us from the love of Christ and in our dependence upon him and in his love we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Confidence. That tonight, Joshua's God is your God and my God. That tonight, David's God is your God and my God. Why on earth should we fear? Why should we be afraid in our faith? If that's the case, if God is so committed, the confidence that brings contentment because it arises from the secure knowledge and experience of God's commitment as our Saviour. The contentment, the confidence, and finally, the conformity. And when we come to think of conformity, we come to think of people together. In other words, we come back to thinking of the community of faith and the community of the people of God. And we, we see that that's what he focuses on in verse number 7. It's about the community of faith. It's about where the people have come from and what has made them what they are. And they are to remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Their leaders who spoke to them the word of God. Not those who are speaking to them now, but those who spoke the word of God to them when they came to put their trust and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ at first. Their past leaders. They can go back to a time when God, through the ministry of the gospel, through their spiritual leaders in the community, God spoke to them. And through that speaking, they came to know the Lord Jesus. They came to put their trust in the Lord Jesus. They were persuaded by the glory of the gospel. 
and the riches of the grace of Christ to put their trust in this marvellous passion spoken of in this letter. You know, the glory of his passion and work. They were the leaders who spoke to them the word of God. They are to remember them. That is, bring back to mind everything that happened in the past. And to bring it back to their minds in such a way as to relive the past and the present in their minds. So that all of the leaders and all of the people who spoke to them the word of God, that they are standing vividly before them. And as the people are vividly brought to their minds in remembering them, then they are to remember the words that they spoke to them. And suddenly everything that happened to them when they came to know the Lord becomes fresh and new and living. And they, they remember the people but especially the remembered the words. And tonight you and I are called upon as the community of faith, as the people of God, to remember in the same way for all of us to go back to our beginnings under the gospel and to think of those who were most influential and the most influential personal people may not have been a preacher of the gospel, may not be somebody that is known to anyone else but for you. They were leaders in the sense that they spoke the gospel to you and through their ministry God by his spirit brought you alive to the gospel. And when you do that it should stimulate, it should revive and bring before your mind that very special blessedness that Paul refers to in writing to the church in Galatia. Where is the blessedness that I saw and that you spoke of when first you knew the Lord? Important to remember our origins. We are thankful for those that we can remember and the words that they spoke. We're especially asked in remembering them, once they are before our minds, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Consider, gaze with all of your attention, be completely absorbed, have your mind so fully devoted to think of, to contemplate, to think again and again at what you see before you, consider the outcome of their way of life. And the outcome can be understood in two ways. The outcome in the sense of which they have a terminus, have an end to their journey of faith. We referred earlier to chapter 2 and verse number 10, where the writer is saying something about God desiring to bring many sons to glory, made the captain of their salvation 
the founder of their salvation, perfect through suffering. That's the outcome. That's the goal. That's the terminus of their way of life. They lived with that prospect constantly in view. And we can remember that from those who went before us. How heavenly minded they were. And because of their heavenly mindedness, they were so useful and so willing and so ready to serve in Christ's church in the world. The outcome of their faith in, in the sense of the goal of their faith. But also the outcome of their faith with regard to the object of their faith. Who did they trust in? Where did faith find its object? And clearly, their faith is in the God who has promised. Their faith is in the Christ whom God has sent. It is faith in Jesus Christ. It is believing that God is, in chapter 11, verse 6, and that he is the rewarder of all those who believe, who trust, who seek him. It's the object of their faith. And the, what is the object of their faith? Jesus Christ. He does not expand on what he means by that. But he has already told them that Jesus Christ is co-equal with God. He is the Son of God in chapter 1. He has already told them that he is the high priest of God who has gone into God's throne and there intercedes for them. He has already told them that he has gone in there with his own blood, having purchased eternal redemption for them. There's no need for him to repeat himself. But tonight, under the outcome of their faith, Jesus as the object of their faith, we can simply tag on these three things under the name of Jesus Christ, the person that he is, where he is now at God's right hand, and what he did in dying for our sins. And the object of the faith was always these things, three in one, and the, the three aspects of the work of Jesus that bring them to think of the person of Jesus, break out into thinking of the three in one that there is in God. And so all of their life brings them to Jesus and through the person of Jesus brings them to think of God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit who is the helper of their people. The outcome of their faith, Jesus Christ. And what then should they do? They should conform to the historical faith of the people that went before them. They are to imitate their faith. They are to do what they see someone else doing. They are to do what they saw those who went before them doing. In chapter 12, after speaking about those who, who lived by faith, the writer brings them to, to think of looking unto Jesus, 
the founder and perfecter of our faith. But here it is imitating, following the example of doing exactly the things that those who went before them did. And in that way, not only is there conformity to the faith, the historical faith of the people of God, but there is continuity in the community of faith. And that doesn't mean to say that we need to relive the past and and that the answer to the present is to bring the, the same, exact same circumstances and to, to replicate that today. That's not what it's saying. But what it is saying is that the same faith with that threefold focus on the person of Jesus that if we imitate their faith in that sense then the community of faith will prosper in the circumstances in which we find ourselves. Let's not think for a moment that the answer to the now is to bring the past in and, and, it, and replicate it, that that would be the answer. Of course, that's not the answer. But the answer is that we have the same faith, the same focus, the same commitment, and that we imitate that, that we put it into practice, so that as they did, so did we. The conformity and the encouragement that that brings together the whole idea of contentment and confidence and conformity. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. And yes, we can think of these words as referring to the unchangeableness of Christ, that he is always the same, that he is never changing, but that's not what it's saying to us here. What it is saying to us here, that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, that is to, to those who, who are your leaders, who have now gone, he was the same to them, that's the yesterday. He is the same today for you and for me as he was to them. And he will be the same forever. So that whoever comes after us in the community of faith as the people of God he will be also with them. And the sameness has to do with his commitment to his people, his presence with them, and the salvation with which he saves them and helps them from day to day. And that's the faith we are to imitate and to have the same confidence because the Jesus who was with them is with us today, the same one with the same things that he offers to us, he is with us tonight. And that's inspiring. That's encouraging. That's uplifting. That if he did all that for them, he will do it for you and for me. And if we have that kind of faith, replicated in our own lives, how transformational for us individually and how transformational for us as a community. And when we grasp that, we know that he will be the same forever. We know that our children will grow up in the same faith, believing in the same Lord Jesus. And as 
he was with those who have gone before us. And as he is with us tonight, so he will be with them. And let's conform to that kind of faith. Let's live that kind of life. Let's be content, have confidence, and let's live the kind of life through which all of these blessings fill our hearts and makes us content in God's allocation and not strive after things that God in his wisdom has chosen to withhold from us. May God help us to do so. May he bless his word. Let us pray. Most gracious God, we worship your name. We do seek to be content in you. We seek to have confidence in your pledges and in your promises. And we do seek to have the faith of the people of God, the living, lively faith that is accompanied by works which confirm its vitality and its freshness every day and a faith which works by love. Bless us with that, we do pray. And bless your word to us, for we ask these things for Jesus' sake. Amen.